Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. Now, I've said that I'm going to talk in this series of my podcast about the reality of putting into practice what I wrote in my book, Impact Culture, as I lead a new centre at Scotland's Rural College. And this week I want to go deeper than I've ever explored before into two of the themes that run through the book. Authenticity and compassion. Now, I've been talking about this already in the last two episodes, um, and uh, I'll be continuing with this next week and giving you another chapter of the book. Uh, But uh, I'm going to take a moment out to look at these two themes in a bit more depth this week, because I want to enable you to give yourself permission to be more authentically you than you've ever thought possible at work by practicing self-compassion and creating a compassionate culture around you. Now, I've written about this quite extensively in the book, and later this year I'll be interviewing Amaya Sote. I apologise if I got her name uh, slightly mispronounced there, but uh, Amaya is a compassion trainer, and she works with organisations to create more compassionate cultures around the world, mainly in the business world. So I think this is a new one to her coming into the university context. Um, and uh, if you want to book onto this, uh, go to the Impact Culture webpage, uh, go to the free training and discussion groups, and you can see see uh, the the page there to book onto this. Uh, and as we're going to hear from Amaya when uh, she, uh, she trains and she'll be on the podcast uh, as well, uh, compassion culture has to start with each of us as individuals learning how to practice self-compassion. As I was saying last week, Dr. Kristen Neff from University of Austin, Texas, uh, explains that the first step to self-compassion is realising that you're not alone in your experience. And sometimes it's really hard to own, let alone process, some of our more negative feelings. And just knowing that others feel the same way as you can validate your feeling as real, as valid, as legitimate enough to own and perhaps accept how you feel as something that is real and understandable. Instead of denying how I feel or beating myself up for feeling the way that I do, I can start to process how I feel now and maybe begin to deal better with those feelings. Instead of pushing them down or disowning them, I can integrate them into my own story. Now, I've written and talked previously about how I realised that I was seeking to achieve impact from my research to make up for the things that had been taken from me as a child. Somehow by giving to others through my work, by trying to achieve impact, I felt like I could somehow make up for the bad stuff that had happened to me when I was growing up. And of course, when I realised that, I no longer wanted to have anything to do with any of that stuff. I disowned my work, my impact, everything. I, I entered this, yeah, dark, dark place. But I came out of that time 
having integrated those childhood experiences into a new story of a survivor of childhood abuse rather than a victim. And by telling my story, I realised that I could bring hope to others. Now, I was speaking to Zoe Ayres on Twitter this week. Uh, if you've not come across her and her work, she was one of the co-founders of the Voices of Academia podcast and blog, which focuses on mental health. She's got a book she's writing at the moment, which I'm looking forward to. And talking to her convinced me that I need to open up. I need to tell a bit more uh, of my own personal story. Zoe's bravery in speaking out about her own mental health struggles has inspired me. I know it's inspired lots of other people. Uh, and it was in fact her openness, uh, talking about uh, her own struggles with depression and anxiety and such like, that have really helped me to accept and own my own experience, uh, in particular my experience uh, of anxiety as real, as valid, as understandable. And I asked her, when did you know, Zoe, when did you know that you were ready to share your story publicly with the world? And she said, well, to be honest, I still don't feel ready sometimes. But every time I speak, I focus on those people, even if it's a small number of people, but those people I know I'm going to help by sharing my experience. And it is from a similar place of vulnerability, uncertainty. You never know how people are going to react when you talk about these things. Uh, and a place of hope alongside that vulnerability that I'm going to share what I'm going to share with you today. And in bringing my full, authentic self to this episode, my hope is that you're going to find hope and healing and be able to more authentically and fully inhabit yourself including the dark and the raw places as well as the parts of you that you shine and polish for the outside world. What I'm going to share with you might sound a bit surprising. I think especially when you consider my apparently confident exterior and uh, all of these outward successes uh, that I seem to have in my career. But it is partly because of this incongruence that I think it's so, imp so important to speak out about these issues. Over the years, people have often dismissed many of the lessons that I've tried to teach about these kinds of things on the basis that anything that someone like me has to say can't be relevant to someone like them. Because, well, look, I'm male, I'm white, I'm old, I'm heterosexual, I, uh, English is my first language. You know, how many layers of privilege do you have to have in order to be as confident and successful as you are? If I had that, then great, uh, I would achieve that stuff as well, but I don't. How can I say anything of relevance to someone with layers of disadvantage and challenge that they have to fight through to just do the basics? But one of the messages that, uh, that I give uh, to the colleagues that I train uh, in this stuff is that, uh, yeah, uh, great, this is true, I have privilege, and this does in part explain some of the successes that I've had. But there are so many of us that have hidden disabilities, hidden challenges that nobody knows about and that nobody speaks about. And it is the invisibility of these challenges that can make them so hard to deal with because nobody sees them. Nobody makes any allowances. I can't talk about them. Nobody even thinks to ask about them. They just assume that the grass is greener for someone like me. And if only they had a life as easy as I did, then they would be able to do everything that they needed to do. 
And that's how it is for many of us who suffer from depression or anxiety. These are completely invisible things. Nobody around us knows how we are actually feeling. And yet this can be completely paralyzing. And a lot of people like me are incredibly good at hiding this stuff. But today I come out of hiding and I admit my struggles with anxiety. I've spoken uh, and I've written quite extensively, uh, although not in much detail, uh, I've told you that uh, I suffered from depression. Uh, but it's taken a lot of guts to actually face the fact that I have an anxiety disorder uh, and that this is something that is a real live issue for me uh, and it's not gone away. Uh, I have uh, gone on a journey where I have achieved incredible levels of healing and I want to share some of the bright points uh, and hopefully you're going to learn some some lessons uh, and this is going to bring you some hope uh, but I do so not from that position of look at me I've solved all of these problems I'm doing this today from a position of look at me I'm on a journey and this is a hard journey uh, and this point in my journey is a point where I'm facing up to my anxiety and doubling down in my efforts to try and, and, and tackle the root causes of this. Uh, and to do this uh, requires me to give you a trigger warning, um, so uh, please do press pause, uh, consider if you want to go further because uh, I'm not quite sure where this is going to go, I'm kind of doing this uh, off, off the cuff uh, to a large extent uh, today, but um, I'm going to have to talk about both sexual and spiritual abuse. Uh, and if you've never heard of that, uh, Google it, spiritual abuse is a thing. <laughs> Um, uh, and it's a nasty thing, uh, but uh, I, I will also talk about healing. I'll talk about freedom. I'll talk about the hope that keeps me going in the midst of these challenges. And I hope that what I have to say on these issues will be as uplifting as they are challenging if you choose to continue listening. Now, I think anxiety is something that pretty much everyone can relate to, and that goes way beyond academia. We have all experienced fear, and most of us have felt anxious at work, very often on a regular basis. And of course, anxiety is just built into academic life because public speaking is something that you have to do. And public speaking, if you look at the lists of things that generally people are scared of, uh, then yeah, getting mad married, um, uh, things like that, giving a, a, but giving a speech, yeah, that's, that's right up there. Public speaking is one of the most terrifying things that most people do. And we have to do this on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of us uh, still have nightmares to this day um, about being taken down publicly. Uh, you've, uh, we've all been at those conferences where an aggressive questioner tears someone down uh, and you just cringe and, uh, and hope that's never you. Uh, and, and certainly never do that to anyone else if you've ever been in that kind of situation. Uh, for me, actually, farmers, uh, they are my most scary audience. So uh, as you know, I did a lot of uh, engagement work um, uh, and try and achieve impact from my environmental research. That means I have to talk to farmers sometimes. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, the, the questions they ask, 
um, uh, are, uh, are often loaded. Uh, they care deeply about what they do. And a lot of what I do is kind of on the conservation side of the debate, which may or may not go well, depending on uh, the values, the, the views of the, the farmers who feel that they're just increasingly under pressure. They can't just do what they want to do, what they're best at and produce food because we have to worry about the climate. And you know, I generalise here. Uh, I'm talking about a certain type of farmer uh, who is going to have a, a good go at me uh, as, uh, as someone who works for a concentration conservation charity in my part-time. Uh, but uh, even worse than that is uh, the painfully obvious questions I get. Uh, and a farmer asks me a question, I'm like, yeah, I would like to know the answer to that as well. And how on earth have I never thought of a question as obvious as that? And how on earth do I not have an answer to that? And now I'm just uh, going down in flames. Uh, my imposter is right out there and raging and uh, I'm losing all confidence. Why on earth did I even think I could stand up in front of this audience? Yeah, we've all been there. Um, uh, so what is your most scary audience? Um, uh, uh, what are your experiences of this? And uh, whether or not you suffer from an anxiety disorder, you can relate to this. We've all been there. Uh, and I think that, uh, sadly, uh, increasingly, this is part of the cultures that we are part of. Uh, I've cited in my book, and I've talked about this in the podcast, in this series, uh, the Wellcome Trust Survey, 4,000 researchers. Uh, what is research culture like, uh, research culture like for you? Uh, and uh, the answer is, for many of us, toxic. Uh, this is uh, endemic bullying, short-term contracts are the norm, our ability to progress dependent on the whims of anonymous reviewers. Anxiety just seems to be baked into our culture. So put that together with an anxiety disorder and yeah, you've got some problems. <laughs> uh, so uh, so so back to me, back to, to, to my story, um, uh, and this is a story that I'm hearing from a number of people. Uh, and, uh, and there are some of us who have been desperate to get back to work, to get, get back to face-to-face. -face. We've been lonely, uh, we felt disconnected, uh, we just need that connection. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, it has been uh, that, uh, that lack of connection that has been driving um, negative, mental uh, me me negative mental health outcomes for, for many of us. But there are others, uh, and I'm on the other side of the camp, uh, where in fact, uh, lockdowns, uh, getting to work from home has been a real boost to my mental health. Uh, I don't have to travel uh, to go to conferences and trainings and meet people uh, who then invite me to go to the pub afterwards and conference dinners, these things. Uh, and I have hated these parts of academic life uh, with a vengeance uh, all the way through. Uh, the, the invitation to go to the pub after work, it just uh, fills me with fear. The, 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 uh, the conference dinner, I feel sick and I don't even want to eat my my meal. <laughs> Just and I put a, a brave face on it, but but I hate this stuff and being able to get out of that. Yeah, I, I'm all for this. This is great, and now I can create a bubble around myself. I can, I can, I can curate my environment. I can control it so that I don't have to bump into people who might psychologically trigger me. And so uh, I tried uh, a couple of months ago, but going back to work, uh, to a face-to-face -face meeting, and it turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I had a psychological trigger, and if you're not sure what those are, uh, this is uh, the, the, the idea that uh, a thing happens 
in the present day that strongly reminds you on a traumatic event, something that happens in your past. And at that moment, you are suddenly reliving that traumatic event. Um, and it can induce a panic attack there and then, uh, but it can induce a whole load of other symptoms um, uh, in the time after having experienced something like that. Uh, flashbacks, nightmares, insomnia uh, and the like. Uh, and so uh, the, the messenger uh, is always innocent in these cases. Uh, it can be the, the most innocent things that can trigger these kinds of experiences. Uh, and in this case, uh, it was just uh, someone who had had a little bit uh, more to drink than they would normally have uh, and uh, was in my face. Uh, they, they, they had a different perception of personal space and they're right up to my face. And so I'm taking a step backwards and they're taking a step forward. I can look behind me. I can see there's a wall. OK, I'm going to have to stand my ground. But this feels really uncomfortable. My, uh, my, my, my personal space is being invaded. And at the same time, Something that regularly happens uh, to me is that this person objectified me as a professor. So I'm talking to you as a professor. I'm not talking to you as a person. Uh, and I'm really pleased that I'm talking to you uh, as a professor. Uh, and, uh, and all of a sudden, this combination of an invasion of personal space combined with uh, this objectification. Uh, and, and I'm right back there uh, in this sexual abuse uh, situation. Um, and uh, I got through uh, the, the, the experience, um, uh, I came home and I did not sleep a wink. And I kid you not, three weeks of psychological trauma, uh, insomnia, when I did sleep, nightmares, um, I have a psychological condition known as night terrors. Um, it's uh, common people who have um, childhood uh, abuse or post-traumatic stress. But the idea is that it's a kind of sleepwalking. Uh, but my nightmares now become hallucinations. Uh, I get out of bed. My eyes are open. And I can see my nightmares. Um, and I interact with my nightmares. My, my nightmares. Uh, and to, to all intents and purposes, at that point in time, they are real. <laughs> and I tell you, I, I've had real near-death uh, near, near, near experiences um, in, in life uh, and, uh, and they're nothing compared to those, those, those night terrors. Um, uh, combined with that, then I'm going into my everyday life and just everything is now triggering me. Everything is reminding me uh, on these childhood experiences. Uh, and now my relationship with my wife, with my children is going down the tubes, um, uh, partly because of the insomnia as well. And now I'm going to put on a short fuse and, uh, and now I'm ready to, to cry at the, at the slightest thing. And oh my goodness, what a mess. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so three weeks of that and now I'm just like, yeah, that didn't go according to plan. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and now I'm ready to, to start thinking uh, differently about going back to my next work engagement. Uh, now, uh, my teaching doesn't start till next semester. I've got a bit of time. Uh, we've got a centre launch coming up, but not yet. Uh, so I've got a counsellor. Uh, I've talked to, about uh, Dave before. Uh, he is uh, a coach, has been a coach for many months, helping me as I uh, build my leadership skills. Um, but uh, he is also a counsellor, so I can, whenever I need to, move into counselling mode. And this has been a key resilience mechanism for me over the years. Uh, so uh, something goes wrong, as has happened recently, and uh, I can say, yep, we're switching from coaching mode to counselling mode. Uh, I need to pick up some pieces here. 
I, I, I've had uh, got two incredible colleagues. Uh, as I said, I work um, uh, in a, uh, a conservation charity uh, part-time. Uh, I have a co-director of my centre, uh, Hannah Rodman. Um, uh, two people that I felt able to trust with this and talk to this who have given me the confidence to believe that, you know what, maybe I can talk about this. Maybe people won't judge me as much as I expect. And it has been their kindness and compassion. And I'm on the edge of tears now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, and poor Hannah had me blobbing on the end of the phone because I just, yeah, her, her, her compassion, her kindness. Wow. I was blown away. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe this is something that I should uh, expect, and I um, I'm hoping for, uh, at least for some of you who listen to this. Um, uh, but talking about this stuff helps, and so this is not just me uh, trying to to get some some free therapy from all of you guys listening. Uh, I'm talking about this because I think that it is important to acknowledge that this stuff is real. People like me, uh, who you would never think, you would never dream, struggle with things like this can be hiding psychological challenges that are as deep and as challenging as this. And there are ways through. That is my hope. I have trust. I have faith. My counsellors told me about some very specific things that we can do together. And I'm looking forward to going through that whole process with me. But uh, this is something that uh, that I've been feeling coming to me for a while. Uh, I, I have recovered from depression. Uh, I know that I have to work hard at all my resilience mechanisms to make sure that this is not something that comes back. Uh, but, uh, but I know, and I have known, that I've been putting off going back to work because of my anxiety. Uh, and and so uh, I have been doing what I can to try and follow uh, a deeper healing process. And I'm not sure how to put this into words, um, so I'm going to try, but uh, bear with me here, because uh, I'm doing the, 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 the obvious things. Um, I've reached out to some people that I trust, uh, and I've talked to them. Uh, obviously, I'm talking to, to my wife uh, about this, uh, who is just uh, incredible. In fact, she is covering for me today. Uh, I'm meant to be at a, at a wedding uh, and, uh, and I'm a point, at a point in my social anxiety where I know that uh, I just I can't do it. Uh, uh, and with, uh, with three uh, young children, um, going to a wedding with our children uh, and covering for me, that is a big favour. I owe her big time. <laughs> Uh, so I'm talking to, to people that, that, I, that I love and that I trust. I'm getting that support. I've, I'm talking to my counsellor. Uh, we're going to do some stuff. We've got some specific therapy that we've got planned. But uh, when you're looking at things that are as deep as this, I think you need to go deeper than some of the tools that we typically go to. Uh, so uh, I know many people who have gained a huge amount of help from cognitive behavioral therapy, and this is something that I have used and do use on a regular basis. But one of the challenges of this is that it's great for symptomatic relief. Uh, but it, it can help us to kind of avoid the fact that there are some deeper roots to this stuff. And so uh, recently I've discovered uh, a form of CBT known as neurocycling that was developed by Dr. Caroline Leaf. 
Uh, and, and it does something kind of different. So yeah, it's, uh, it's doing that cognitive behavioral therapy kind of thing where uh, I become aware of my thoughts and my feelings and I record them. I look for the cognitive distortions. Uh, but crucially, I also look for the roots, uh, the stories, the experiences from my past that explain why I'm doing those cognitive distortions. Uh, and rather than a quick fix, uh, this is a two to three month process every day where I go through this process and I look for the roots of the roots and I keep going deeper and deeper. And I start now as I uncover those unhealthy, toxic stories to be able to reframe, to understand, to start telling more healthy stories. Uh, for example, that story from uh, to, from victim to survivor that I, I went through uh, as I've recovered from depression. Uh, but in this case, doing this uh, around uh, the anxieties that I experience in work. And what I've uncovered uh, as I've looked at this is something that I think many of us have at the heart of uh, many of the psychological challenges we face. And I'm going to suggest uh, that there are two types of people in the world. There are people who see the world fundamentally as a benevolent place. The world is a good place. People ultimately are good at heart. They try their best. Uh, things will turn out right in the end. Um, whatever happened to us will be turned to good. We have that power. Uh, this idea of the benevolent universe. And then there are people kind of like me, <laughs> Uh, who instinctively feel that the world is a scary place. It is, by definition, uh, dark, dangerous. You cannot trust people. Uh, things are going to go wrong. Uh, uh, almost inevitably, once you reach a success, you're waiting for everything to collapse. Pride comes before a fall, and we fall on a regular basis. Uh, the world is dark, it is scary. This, this, is, this is a place I need to protect myself from. And if that is you, then the question I have for you is, well, where does that come from? What, is, uh, what are the experiences, what are the narratives, what are the stories uh, that have led you to that often unconscious belief? And what are the conscious beliefs and thoughts and behaviours that flow from that kind of view of the world? So I guess you could use the academic jargon here of ontology. This is it's an ontology that I got here that I need to break, that I need to change. And that's deep. And I'm going to suggest that that is a level deeper than psychology. It is at the level of my spirit. Um, now, I believe that we have a spirit. Uh, I believe that, uh, that there is a spiritual realm. Uh, we can look at this uh, in academic terms, and let's take the academic definition of spirituality as a connection to the other, where the other is just something that is beyond you, that outlasts you, that is beneath your experience, beyond your experience, that brings you a sense of meaning or purpose. For me, I'm a Christian, uh, uh, and this uh, is a spirituality which uh, has God at the heart of this, and uh, my understanding of God uh, is through Jesus. Um, and for me, uh, your, your faith uh, either is made or is broken uh, through psychological experiences and, and physical experiences uh, such as those that I've had. And you might find it surprising that I am still a Christian, given what I'm about to tell you in terms of the spiritual abuse that I suffered in the church that is a large part of the challenge that I face today.
But whether I can explain it or not, uh, whether I can prove any of this or not, I know that I know that I know that there was something there with me uh, in those dark times as a child. Uh, I used to lie in bed. I had uh, one of those uh, really cheesy pictures of Jesus as the shepherds. Um, and he's white and he's got blonde hair. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I used to, to lie in bed and imagine that I was a sheep and that Jesus was at uh, the, the edge of this. It was a stone sheepfold, uh, and, uh, and Jesus is, uh, is sitting at the, uh, the gap in the sheepfold. There's a fire roaring there. It's dark outside. It's raining. There's a storm raging. But I'm safe. I'm protected. Um, and there's a sense that, uh, that there is someone watching over me despite the turmoil that, uh, that I'm in. Uh, and I've never left that sense, that, that belief that, uh, that there is a God uh, and that uh, through my relationship with Jesus, um, whether it's the metaphor of Jesus as a, as a shepherd, uh, more recently as a gardener, uh, or just his life story and his parables and what he came to do for us, uh, there is this sense that, yeah, there is something uh, that I can reach out to, someone that I can reach out to, a crutch. Uh, it's bizarre, I find people uh, criticise Christianity, any form of religion, as a crutch, when, my goodness, we all need a crutch, don't we? <laughs> I mean, uh, me by myself trying to get through life? Yeah, uh, that's a challenge. I'm definitely not a humanist. <laughs> I'll take any help that, that, that I can get. And of course, uh, as a Christian, I have asked the question that you're probably asking, why? Why, oh why, did God allow the sufferings uh, that I went through uh, as a child? Uh, how could a just God allow something like that to happen? Uh, and for me, uh, that's a philosophical argument that doesn't really hold a, a lot of water. Um, uh, yeah, we are born with free will. We get to make our own decisions. Uh, and that means that uh, fallible humans will make their own selfish decisions. And those decisions have consequences. And those consequences are often painful. Uh, and my childhood experience uh, was the result of uh, someone uh, making some very selfish decisions that uh, had vast repercussions for me. And for me, actually, the, uh, the proof, if ever I had a proof uh, internally uh, of a God, is the fact that I survived, that I got through, that there was someone, someone there guiding me, supporting me, helping me to survive uh, through all of the repercussions in my adult life uh, and, uh, and to become that survivor rather than that victim. And I look at so many people who've had the, the same kinds of experiences as me, who have turned to various forms of addiction, uh, who've got broken marriages, and the statistics are incredible. Uh, they are bar dark, they are bleak. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and I thank God that uh, that I have not experienced uh, so many of those negative outcomes. Uh, so uh, I want to 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 come to a, a story of of healing uh, before I come back to this uh, still live and present issue of anxiety. But before I do so, you need a bit of the backstory, and so. Uh, a trigger warning <laughs> has been put out there, so I'm just going straight in with this. Um, uh, so uh, I suffered sexual abuse, uh, and I suffered this from preschool, from some of my earliest uh, memories. 
uh, all the way through school, uh, all the way through my teenage years and into uh, young adulthood. Uh, and this was not a, a kind of a, a once-off kind of thing. This was a, a week-in, week-out experience uh, prolonged throughout my childhood. And my parents uh, uh, spotted the symptoms of this, uh, behavioural symptoms. And sadly, in their infinite wisdom, they concluded, uh, as uh, Christians of a certain type, uh, that this was evidence uh, of some kind of spiritual attack. A kid does not behave like this normally. There must be an explanation. Uh, and their explanation was uh, demon possession. Uh, and so, from an early age, I was uh, subjected to uh, what uh, is kindly described in Christian circles as deliverance ministry. Um, uh, and uh, I've met people who have uh, told me that they have gained huge amounts uh, from this. Uh, and if you want to use demons as a metaphor for uh, the things that are going on in your life um, as a Christian, uh, as an adult, then be my guest. But uh, when you are doing this with children, this is deeply wrong and irresponsible. Uh, and so uh, I was told that there were demons uh, that explained my behaviour and that I had to have these cast out of me. Uh, and I remember there was this one moment that was pivotal uh, where my grandmother uh, came to, uh, to do uh, an exorcism. Uh, now she uh, was a missionary um, in Africa where uh, there was a, a really common uh, mindset uh, that multiple things, uh, in fact most forms of, of mental health problems, um, are the result of demon possession. She was familiar with this, she'd cast out many demons in her time, so, uh, so she came to my demons. And there was this point where she looked me in the eyes and she spoke to the deep, deep fear and anger that she saw in my eyes. And she spoke to those demons of fear, the demon of anger. And at that moment, I felt seen because, yeah, she was using this terminology of demons, but she was talking to the reality. I was terrified and I knew there was something wrong. And that sense of injustice was fueling this anger deep within me. And there was this incredible, uh, almost magical, symptomatic relief uh, at that time. Uh, and everyone was like, wow, you did it. You, 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 you got rid of the demons. Uh, incredible. <laughs> and of course, what had happened was uh, that she had named what was going on for the first time. She put words that actually made sense to my experience. But of course it wasn't lasting um, and uh, the symptoms came back um, uh, and the result of this was that uh, I grew up uh, to believe that I was not in control of my own mind. At any point, external to me, some outside force could come, take over my mind and my thoughts, control my thoughts and dictate my behaviours. Uh, and I was at the mercy of these evil spirits whenever they decided to attack. And so into my teenage years, uh, I started to get sexual urges, uh, sexual thoughts, uh, as is normal as a teenage boy. And I believed that I was possessed by a spirit of lust. And every morning I would cast out this spirit of lust. And every day the thoughts would come back and uh, I would feel uh, possessed again. And so layered on top of 
this shame and dirtiness that I felt uh, as I was being subjected to uh, sexual abuse was this spiritual abuse uh, that told me that uh, not only was I, I fundamentally wrong, I was evil. Uh, I, I, I was a man, a boy, uh, possessed. Uh, the devil himself could operate through me. You should be scared of someone like me. <laughs> and I believed this stuff. Uh, the result was that um, uh, it, it was well into my teens before I could sleep without a nightlight, uh, and to this day I have to have light in my room. I cannot. If, if I wake up and it's pitch black, I am instantly terrified, uh, I, I, and yeah, <laughs> this is a bad place for me. Uh, and of course, uh, now you can see why I have night terrors. Um, uh, the impact that had on my ability to, to sleep as a child um, uh, when uh, we are already not quite sure what is the distinction between our imagination and reality uh, was uh, the, the root cause of this, uh, this sleep disorder that torments me to this day. And so the effects of something like this are just, yeah, deep and far-reaching. Uh, I, I knew that uh, if I did not submit to what was going on uh, with me, that I would face anger. And so just uh, anyone getting angry with me, uh, and instantly I'm back in that place. Uh, and that combination uh, of, of that anger, that manipulation with that long-term sexual uh, abuse um, is remarkable uh, how... Uh, easily I read things into situations where there is nothing going on <laughs> uh, and uh, and find myself back in that place of uh, of challenge of of trauma uh, panicked uh, shame and so, or whatever else it, it might be and so if you're wondering um uh, yeah mark this is ringing alarm bells for me who else is at risk from this person i, I did go to the police um uh, it was sadly until adulthood that uh, i'd gone through uh, enough uh, healing uh, to get to a place where i had the courage uh, to actually go to the police uh, the, at the end of the day uh, there was insufficient evidence uh, to be able to take anything to court um, uh, and uh, I have tried multiple times. I've gone through social services. Uh, I've gone back to the police. Um, uh, there is nothing that uh, that can be done uh, without the kind of evidence that they need. And this is common uh, in uh, in historic uh, sexual abuse uh, cases. Uh, so uh, if I was looking for 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 justice there, uh, that's uh, certainly not where I'm going to to, to get it. But now to the healing, because this has been a, a properly challenging place to be, and this has been my entire life. I, I don't remember a time when I did not experience a sense of dread, of doom, that the world was this scary place, this sense of ever-present threat, of danger, of the evil spirits that could infect me at any moment. Um, uh, uh, this this has been with me, uh, and even uh, long 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 since I I, I understood um, uh, the 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 passages around uh, demon possession in the Bible and uh, and put two and two to, together and, uh, and no longer uh, have uh, a belief uh, in in any of these kinds of things. Um, that that sense that the world is a dark and scary place is something that has remained with me uh, all the way all the way through. Uh, and the, the, the healing has had to be deep because the experience has been so all-encompassing. Uh, my day-to-day uh, -day experience has been trigger after trigger. And every time I have a trigger, I'm in that place of trauma. 
And my day-to-day -day experience has been literally dozens of triggers sometimes. Um, uh, so I rarely get over one trigger before another trigger happens. I am experiencing multiple new triggers per day. Uh, I've not gotten out of those triggers. Remember I told you it took me three weeks to get out of that last trigger. Uh, I've not got out of one trigger before there's another one that's come on top. Uh, and so I'm unable to process uh, one trigger because actually there's a dozen, there's, there's maybe 20 of them all layered one on top of the other, all inducing different levels of anxiety, uh, of anger, of shame, of, of whatever it might be. And just this complete internal mess. Uh, it has been, yeah, it's, it's been incredible. Uh, and it got to a point uh, in the, the first lockdown where my mental health took a, a plunge. Uh, it was my dad's 70th birthday, it would have been, uh, he died when I was 19. Um, uh, we celebrated it the best we could. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, I went to this dark, dark place. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and there was I facing depression all over again. Uh, there'd been a bunch of triggers around the birthday uh, and uh, I couldn't sleep uh, uh, and I cried out to God uh, and it was one of those things uh, and I can't remember the story in the Bible but it was like I literally wrestled with God I spent a sleepless night begging pleading with God saying God for crying out loud you say that you are a God of love you are a God of justice this is not love. This is not justice. I was screaming. <laughs> I was shouting at God, hey, please do something, anything, but release me from this because I cannot bear this anymore. And, and as I got to that point, if you've ever been to that point of absolute desperation, where I have cried and screamed myself hoarse and there's nothing, there's this silence that draws out. And in this silence, was this voice in my head that said, I am going to heal you. <laughs> and it frustrated the hell out of me. Uh, yeah, uh, you said that, how many times? Soon. Okay, but I need it now. I am at the end of my tether. And all I could get was, it's coming. It's gonna be soon, uh, trust me. And you know what? From there, it got even worse. And I got to the point where I was back to those suicidal thoughts uh, that I'd been in when I was depressed. And, uh, and I was just like, oh my goodness, uh, yeah, I cannot go back here again. Yeah, my wife was like, Mark, I can't go back here again as well. Please do something about this. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, uh, it, it got worse before it got better. Uh, and I got to the Christmas holidays that year and something happened and uh, it had been about a week and uh, there'd been this gradual gradual reduction in noise uh, and you know that thing when uh, there's been traffic noise uh, and you're kind of um, uh, gradually kind of walking away from the traffic and then suddenly you realize huh there's nothing here it's quiet You've been walking in silence for some time, but you hadn't noticed the silence. It kind of crept up on you. And it was like this. There was this mental silence that had gradually, by gradually been creeping up on me. That uh, I'd been you doing all of the stuff I'd been doing for years, practicing my CBT, trying to unravel each trigger as it came. And, and actually, I'd been unraveling, dealing, getting to the roots, tackling each trigger as it came. 
and the frequency with which the triggers were coming was reducing. Uh, the speed with which I was dealing with the triggers was increasing. And the number of triggers that were layered on top of each other every day was reducing. And I'd got to the point where I'd had a couple of days where I didn't have any triggers. There was no anxiety. There was no sense of dread. It, it had disappeared. And I, I, there was this point, I just, I, I, I literally, I, it, was a, it was 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> it was dark. I was on this country lane and I fell to my knees in the middle of this lane with my arms outstretched in just awe and speechlessness. So you did it. It happened. You said you were going to heal me and this is what it feels like for the first time in my life to not be experiencing life with triggers. And it was just incredible. <laughs> uh, now, of course, uh, Christmas is a challenging time for me in terms of triggers. Um, uh, and of course, the triggers came back and I dealt with them uh, and I yo-yoed. Uh, but there was this sense of, you know what, I've tasted this and huh, I'm tasting it again today. <laughs> uh, and I, used, and I got, got these, these, these shafts of sunlight, these days when I didn't have triggers. And it was just like being in heaven. It was just like, wow, this is life. Uh, Jesus talks about bringing life and I bring you life in all of its fullness. That's what you're talking about. Okay, uh, this is what I want more of. And gradually by gradually, this is now weeks at a time with no triggers. And uh, now clearly there's a psychological process going on here. I'm doing my CBT practice. I, I, I've done all of this stuff. But I've done this for years. I've done this for decades. <laughs> I've gone through so many different counsellors, techniques. I've tried hypnotherapy. I've tried drugs, uh, like antidepressants, I hasten to add. <laughs> I've tried everything that you can possibly imagine. And nothing seems to have worked. And that time, that time, I, I, I can't explain it. Other than th there was a sense that God told me, it's coming. It's coming soon. And this sense, again, that there had been that companion with me. Yeah, a companion that I was dis dis distinctly not liking <laughs> at that point of crisis. I was properly angry with God. But that sense that he was there. Uh, whether I was pissed off with him or not, he was there throughout it. And now he was there in this light place of healing. And the sense that there was a spiritual healing in there as well. And so... Uh, that's gone on uh, for a number of months now. Uh, and a few months ago, I had this sense as I was praying about this, that God was saying, this isn't good enough yet. Uh, yeah, you are experiencing life trigger-free, but that's not full healing. I want you to actually get back some of those stolen years. I want you to actually experience depths of joy, of being that you haven't been able to experience. There is a deeper level of healing that I want you to have. And, and so I was like, okay, great. So how do you want me to do that then? And there was a sense that this is, yeah, carry on with all the stuff that you're doing. The psychological stuff, it's important, it's good, but there's something deeper you need to do. Uh, and the sense I had was, I need to retire. Hmm. That's problematic. I'm, I'm looking at the sums here. I can't retire. <laughs> uh, I kind of feel like I've got work I need to do. I, I don't really want to retire, but yet there was this growing thirst, this sense that I, I need to stop. Work is getting in the way. I need time. I need space. 
to let this thing happen, whatever it is. And then I realized, huh, you know what, I'm flexible. Uh, I'm, I'm an academic after all. Uh, and as, I, as you know, uh, and I've written about this in my book, The Productive Researcher, I work my hours, I work my 37, 38 hours per week, and I'm really disciplined about that. Uh, so let's just be flexible about this. Uh, I can do an extra half an hour in the morning. Uh, I can do an extra hour here or there uh, as I'm waiting outside rugby or swimming pool with my children, etc. Uh, and as a result of that, I can get a Friday afternoon off with no guilt. Uh, with luck, I can actually uh, pile in a few extra hours here and maybe get the whole of Friday off. Uh, and of course, if I, I need to have a meeting there, uh, if I haven't got through the week's work, I'm not going to renege on those uh, promises, but I'm going to work towards this. And I did it once. And that thirst was suddenly satiated. That sense of being in the right place at the right time. We've all been there. But there was a sense of, <laughs> okay, this is what living really is about. This is where I need to be now. And that one moment was enough to say, I make time for this. Uh, yeah, whether it's a half day, whether it's more than that, I'll see what I can get, but I have to do this. Uh, and uh, and this sense of, of need, of psychological need, of spiritual need. I, I can't survive without this. I need to get to this Friday. I'm living for that space. Uh, and what happened? Uh, what has happened in those times? I've just got on my bike. I've followed my nose. I've gone into nature. And every week I've gone somewhere different. <laughs> uh, and the first uh, few weeks that I did this, uh, all I got was this overwhelming sense of God saying, you're safe. That's all. Just, you're safe. No other message than that. Uh, and bizarrely, every week uh, I had this sense that I had to go somewhere in nature and lie down. And God said, okay, now you're lying down, I want you to sleep <laughs> in nature somewhere. And it was just this sense of, like, like one of those trust experiments. Uh, and one time it was uh, in a tree. Uh, I'd climbed a tree. It wasn't high. I probably wouldn't have called myself any damage if I'd fallen out. Uh, but yeah, and now sleep. And it was this, this thing of God saying to me, yeah, you can trust me. The world is a safe place. Uh, no wild animal, no person, nothing is going to come. Trust me, you're safe. You're in that sheepfold again. I am uh, that shepherd. I am protecting you. Trust me. And keep doing this every week until you change those patterns in your brain that say, I can't trap my eyes. I, I can't fall asleep. No way can I do that. I can't even lie down. I mean, that, that, uh, what would anyone see if they came across me? This, this is embarrassing. This is, this is scary. No, I can't do this. To, yeah, I can do this because the world is a safe place. And then gradually, uh, as I've moved from this, uh, the metaphors change, and I've had this sense that I'm being led to a garden. And I went to a walled garden, uh, and I sat under a tree. And again, uh, God was like, so, lie down, sleep under the tree. Uh, and uh, there is this new sense of God as a gardener, uh, saying, okay, you're safe. It's a walled garden. You're still safe, but I want to grow stuff in you. And I have no idea what's going on. I fall asleep. And I wake up and it feels like there's something else that's lifted. There's something else that's cleared. I feel somehow more whole. 
I can't put any words to it. And the sense I have is that I don't need to put words to it because it's not a thing that you can put words to. This is something going on at the subconscious, at the spiritual. And I'm just trusting the process. Uh, whether you want to call it nature, whether you want to call it God, uh, whether you call it my own intuition, my own experience of this uh, is a, a deeper than ever walk and a healing walk uh, with my master, uh, my gardener, uh, my shepherd, uh, uh, but uh, a sense that uh, this is, in fact, perhaps, yeah, in fact, it is really a safe world that I live in. And that narrative is gradually, week by week, shifting from a dark and scary world to a benevolent, uh, benevolent world. So let's come back to anxiety, which is where I started uh, from. I think it's very easy, uh, and we hear these stories of uh, you know, the real deal, uh, people who uh, are giving their testimonies, uh, I, I, I healed myself, um, you know, this was my technique, um, you know, do what I said and you'll heal. Um, and there's something a bit trite about this, because the reality is, if you've had experiences like me, that this is going to be a journey of a lifetime. There are hurts here, there are wounds here that will never fully heal. There are limitations that I'm always going to have to be aware of and manage for. There are some triggers that I'm able to unravel and to, uh, to deal with and tackle now. There are others that I'm not ready for yet and I have to hide from uh, and, uh, and avoid, uh, which is what I'm doing today as I don't go to that wedding. Uh, and that's okay. I'm just taking this one step at a time. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that it is possible to be healed and yet still be on a journey. And I want to record this now and to put this out to the world now in an unfinished place. Uh, this is still a live situation for me. I, I, I'm still looking for more healing. Uh, I know that I need to find ways of dealing with my anxiety, at least to a point where I can go back to work post-COVID. And I have trust, I have faith that in the same way that I recovered from depression, uh, I am going to recover from anxiety as well. But underlying this, there is this deeper current, this deeper journey that I feel that I'm on, uh, and a deeper healing that, paradoxically, uh, even in this state of challenge that I'm in now, I know that I am still, uh, with that anxiety, going week by week deeper into healing. And so I hope that I finish on a message of hope. I've thrown everything at this. Uh, maybe I've thrown far more than you feel uh, is appropriate. Uh, I've thrown more than you feel able to throw at this. But I invite you to experiment. I invite you to accept my story for what it is. I can't prove uh, that uh, I'm right, uh, that uh, any one of these things I've thrown at this has been the thing that has helped me to heal, that is going to enable me to come out the other side of my anxiety. But this is my experience. This is my lived experience. This is real to me. And whatever your experience is, is your reality. And I encourage you to go into that reality, to accept where you are, 
to listen to my experience and validate that it's okay to feel similar kinds of feelings to me, to have similar thoughts to me, to have similar experiences to me, and to be on that journey, to not be finished yet, and to believe, to have hope that it is possible to get better. Uh, I'm sitting here um, and uh, I've got a, a, a book of prayer. Uh, it was uh, Father's Day not long ago and uh, uh, my wonderful wife and children uh, gave me a, a prayer book by Padraig Otuma uh, and I highly recommend uh, his material. And uh, it's a daily prayer book and, uh, and I've got stuck on day one. <laughs> and, uh, and I just keep, um, uh, keep reading this. And uh, it starts with a quote from Luke 2 verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. And so I'm going to finish with Padraig's prayer. God of fear, God of the night, God of the expectation, you visited shepherds in the night with songs and sights of joy. In all our nights, turn us towards hope, because hope might just keep us alive.